Father God, all that we have needed, your hand has provided. Truly, you are a gracious God, and your faithfulness is great throughout all generations. Morning by morning, your compassions never fail. You place within our hearts a new song, a song of praise to you, God, a song of praise of your faithfulness in each of our lives. And God, each of us can testify to the fact that you are amazing and that you are present. And so we come to you, God, grateful for that, knowing that apart from you, we have nothing, and that with you, all things are given. So, Lord, we praise you, and, and we gather to declare your name is holy. And, Lord, we thank you that as the disciples came to you and said, teach us to pray that the Jesus, you came along and gave these amazing words that we now pray together. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. I invite you to be seated, and we praise God. Children through grade four, you can head off to the classes that are ready for you, and uh, we're going to continue to look at uh, what it means to be a disciple. For those of you who know our dear brother and friend, Bill Nelson, he stepped into glory, and he's worshiping in heaven this morning for the first time, and um, that which we hope for. You know that we've been created to step into the presence of God and for death to be swallowed up by life, and so we celebrate, yet we realize that there's mourning on this side. And so pray for the family, and uh, services will be held Saturday as we continue to remember Bill and his impact in our lives. Well, we are continuing in our series of what it means to be a disciple. What is a disciple? And it's been a fun series to go through. We have two weeks left. This week we're looking at generosity, and next week we'll be looking at stewardship, which are kind of two sides of the same coin. But today we're looking at the truth that a disciple is generous and stopping to think of what that means. And um, so it's kind of interesting because the Lord lays on my heart the sermon series pretty much in the, in the fall. Sometimes it changes as we go along. Um, Michelle can tell you that by the time we get to the end of the year, it's usually preaching schedule final 12 or something like that. You know, it's kind of like WD-40, you know. Formula 409, okay, well, hello. Uh, well, anyway, okay, sometimes it should just stay in my mind, I guess. Generosity. The Lord himself says, Paul tells us in Acts, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And I always think of that in the fall, you know, as the leaves are falling down and you're watching them blow into your neighbor's yard. 
You always think it's more blessed to give than to receive. And, and as we think of this and look at this, it's part of what it means to consider what it means to be generous and to live generously. Now, last week we looked at contentment, and it was fun, wasn't it, to meander through this amazing letter to the church in Philippi that Paul wrote and to think of all the different aspects of who God is that allows us to understand and know what it means to be uh, content in what God has provided for us. This week, we're going to take a little bit different look at this same group, this church in Philippi, and they will help us as we read what Paul has written about them to understand what generosity really means and what it means for a disciple to be generous. So we'll start by reading this passage that follows what we looked at last week, and it's there on the front of your note page in the, in the bulletin. Yet it was good of you to remember me, Paul says. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one other church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, yet you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid again and again when I was in need. I am not saying this because I'm looking for a gift, but I'm looking for what may be credited to your account. It's a significant statement as Paul talks to this church in Philippi that had partnered with him again and again and again, continuing to send aid, the partnership in the gospel, the fellowship of the gospel. And as he speaks to them, he says, I'm telling you this not because I'm looking for a gift, but I rather am interested in what may be credited to your account. He says, I have received full payment and even more. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphrodites the gifts that you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. So as we look at this passage, we see that Paul is writing to this church in Philippi and really celebrating the fact that they are so generous in the way that they partner in building the kingdom of God. And that's what we need to understand as we look at today what I'm hoping we can grasp maybe in a new way, and maybe for some of you this is very familiar, but as we pray that prayer that the Lord gave us as a pattern, we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I don't know about you, but whenever I pray that, I always think, what would it be like if God's will was done on earth the way that it was in heaven? Imagine if we were all completely obedient. What would that look like, right? What would it look like if we were building the kingdom of God, if we were partnering with him and participating with him and building his kingdom here? Because sometimes when we offer that prayer, it's as if we absent ourselves from it. But we can't do that. As we say, God, build your kingdom here, what we're really saying is build your kingdom here so that I can be used by you to impact and build your kingdom here. And so as Paul is speaking to these church in Philippi and speaking about the church in Philippi, what he's helping us to see is that they are repeatedly, again and again and again and again, investing themselves in building the kingdom of heaven 
through their giving and through their generosity. And so as we look at that, we're going to see some interesting things. And we're going to see that disciples live a lifestyle of generosity. So it's not just that disciples are generous here and there. Rather, disciples, followers of Jesus, actually live a lifestyle of generosity in every aspect of their lives. And so the first thing we see is that disciples who are helping to build the kingdom of God are following a generous king. Our king is a generous king. Now in, the, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, and today we're looking at this church in Philippi, but we're going to be in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, and we're also going to be in 1 Timothy 6, and we'll be kind of moving back and forth, so you may want to find both of those spots in your Bible, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, 1 Timothy chapter 6. And as we look back and forth in here, we're going to see what it means to be serving a generous king and being part of building the kingdom of God with our generosity. So we're following a generous king. As Paul writes now to this church in Corinth, and it's interesting because both of these churches, the church in Philippi and the church in Corinth, these are two churches that Paul has a deep affection for. Now the interesting thing is, is as he writes to the church in Philippi, you can see that not only does he have a deep love for for them, but they have a deep love for him. There's, There's this partnership that's been going on. And we looked at how that was formed last week. But now this week, he's going to, we're going to look at his writing to this church in Corinth. Now, the church in Corinth is a little different than the church in Philippi. Both churches are churches that Paul loves deeply, and he talks about that in the letters to both of those churches, how deeply he loves these people. And that's what's so incredible about Paul. Paul has a deep love for people, so deep that he longs for them to know the Lord. And and once they do, and they come into the kingdom, he loves them even more deeply. But this church in Corinth is a little different than the church in Philippi. They haven't received his love quite in the same way as the church in Philippi did. And they certainly haven't responded to his love in the same way that the church in Philippi did. Corinth was an interesting city at this point in time. It was a city that had been completely destroyed, and then one of the emperors decided to put there a new Roman city. So even though it was in Greece, it was a Roman city, decidedly Roman. There were temples to all sorts of idols there. Diana was one of those who was who was idolized and worshipped, and so that was a significant thing. But as well, as the city was rebuilt and refounded... It was refounded with Roman soldiers and a lot of freedmen, a lot of people who had been slaves but who had been made free. It was located in an interesting part. It was on an isthmus, and there were the isthmus games that happened there, sort of like the Olympic Games, and so it was a very popular destination place. And so the city grew rapidly and became very affluent. And the interesting thing is, because it was formed by these freedmen, people who had been slaves but became free, it was a a way, a place that people could move up in status very quickly. Whereas in other parts of the Roman Empire, that couldn't happen. Here in Corinth, a person could move very, very quickly up the status ladder. 
However, what would happen is even as they moved up that status ladder, those who had been part of the status for a long time would look down on those people. So even money and everything else couldn't help you with that. So the people in Corinth would look for different places where they could exercise their status and where they could be appreciated for just how special they really were. And the church was one of those places. The church was one of those places. And so what would happen is people would come into the church and they'd be trying to gain status by being in the church. And this is the context in which Paul writes these letters to the church in Corinth, and, and many times this is what was causing the angst between him and, and the Corinthians is just this constant battle. And because it was such a materialistic city, there were so many things there. They were affluent. They had what they needed. And so all of these things caused for these, this context. Now, he wrote at least four letters to the church in Corinth. We have two preserved for us. And in the second letter, it seems like there had been reconciliation and resolution to the tension that was there. And he was able to step into their lives and really begin to care for them and shepherd them because the angst had been very, very much minimized. And so by the time we get to chapter 8 in this letter... He's ready to start talking to them about the things that had been talked about before but needed to be put on the back burner because of the tension that had been in their midst. So that's the context of the chapter in which we're jumping in. And why this is a significant chapter is because he's going to use the church in Philippi as an example of what it means to be a generous disciple of Jesus Christ. So in there, he says that we are following a generous king. As we come to the ninth verse of chapter 8 of Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, he says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. So he's reminding these um, amazing followers of Jesus in Corinth, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus, that though he was rich, he became poor. And what exactly does that mean? Well, the church in Philippi would have understood it because Paul, writing to them in the second chapter of his letter to them, says, have this same mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, that emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being... Found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So God came to earth. God took on flesh in the person of Jesus. Most amazing that Jesus would leave heaven, would leave the riches of heaven, would leave the sinless realm of heaven and would step into this sin-cursed, depraved world and would choose to, instead of coming in great wealth, come in absolute poverty. And he set aside those things so that he could come to earth and could take on poverty so that we could be made rich. He left the kingdom of heaven and came to earth so that it would be possible for us to enter the kingdom of heaven. 
And my prayer is that for each one of you, whether you're here in the room or whether you're watching online, you've come to a point where you've been able to understand that. That you've come to a point where you've realized that the things you've done in your life that are sinful, the things that you've done that are opposed to God, have actually separated you from God. And that separation is an eternal separation. And it cannot be repaired. And the chasm that's been formed cannot be crossed by any effort of our own. And God knew that. And that's why he sent Jesus. And that's why Jesus came, to seek and save the lost. And Jesus came, and as fully God and as fully man, as, as perfect man, he lived a perfect life. And we crucified him. We placed him on a cross. And yet he went to the cross willingly. And he died the death that our sin earned. And in dying, he actually became death. He became the punishment. He took on the punishment for our sin. And paid the penalty so that our penalty could be paid, so that our relationship with God could be restored. But not everyone who knows that gets to have the advantage of being forgiven. It's only effective for you as you turn to God and say, God, I know that I'm a sinner and I know that I deserve separation from you, but I ask that you'd forgive me. I'd ask that you'd take this pain and this hurt and these things that sin has brought into my life, the darkness of the realm that I've been part of. I repent, I turn from that, and I ask that you'd forgive me and I exchange my life of sin for your life of righteousness. And as you do that, as you turn to him and ask for forgiveness and say, Lord, take my life, your life changes and you move from the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of light and you experience a life to the fullness. But the other thing that happens is you become a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. It becomes your primary citizenship. And you have this generous king who you follow and who you emulate. Our king is generous. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave, and he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. And so first and foremost, as we look at what it means to live this lifestyle of generosity, we need to realize that it comes as we turn from our lives of sin and we take hold of the life that God is offering us through Jesus. And if you've done that, then you're not the same. You're a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. And you begin to live your life differently. Amen? Amen. So, disciples live a lifestyle of generosity. First, we follow a generous king. Secondly, we are generous by his grace. And this is where it gets exciting as we see what Paul writes about this amazing church in Philippi. Chapter 8 of 2 Corinthians. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. So Paul starts out by telling this church in Corinth, and there couldn't be a, a, a greater uh, a disparity between the two. There's this 
church in, in Philippi and this church in Corinth, and they're in different situations. See, he's telling, I want you to know about the grace of God. See, it's, it's the grace of God that allows us to be generous. And it's the grace of God that allows us to be saved, but it's also the grace of God that allows us to live the life of a disciple. It's his power in us. That's his grace, his power flowing through us. His presence flowing through us is what allows us to live the life that he's designed for us to live and experience the abundance of life as opposed to the conflict in life. And so... He says, brothers and sisters, I want you to know about the grace of God that has been given to these churches in Macedonia. Predominantly, this is the church in Philippi. And he says, listen, church in Corinth, you've got to hear this. God has poured out his power in an amazing way in these churches. And what is the amazing way that he's poured out his power? Out of severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity. Now see, that just doesn't make sense. These two churches are, are just so different. Here in Corinth, you've got prosperity and all of these things, and over in Philippi, you've got a group of people who have been under a severe test of affliction, which has produced an abundance of joy. Say what? Okay, there's a severe test of affliction that has created this abundance of joy and their extreme poverty has overflowed into a wealth of generosity. None of that makes sense, does it? It does if we realize the grace of God. It's only the grace of God that allows you to see the situation in your life the way that God sees it. And it's only the grace of God, the power of God working in your life that allows severe test of affliction to bring joy and extreme poverty to bring generosity. That's God in your life. So many times when things don't make sense in your life, it's because God's doing something. The other times it doesn't make sense is when you're not letting God do something. Paul goes on to say, for they gave according to their means. And as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. This is so amazing. So what's happening is Paul, as he's traveling around in this missionary journey, what he's doing is he's raising funds for the poor in Jerusalem. And so he's out there and he's just asking people to be generously giving to the poor in Jerusalem so that the kingdom of God can be helped, can be strengthened, and can be built. And as he comes to this church in Philippi, these churches of Macedonia, he finds that there's severe affliction, he finds that there's extreme poverty, he finds there's a wealth of generosity, and what he finds is they're begging to give money. They are begging to give money to people who maybe are better off than they are. And they're giving according to their means and even beyond their means. And they're not giving because they're being coerced. They're giving of their own accord. Paul has made the need known and they're giving according to their means all on their own because of God's presence in their lives. Beyond their means. 
it's interesting because many times as we, as we see ourselves and we look at what we have, how often do we give beyond our means? And what does that look like for us? Now, Paul is speaking exactly about money here. This passage is talking about money. He's talking about giving money and taking part in the relief of the saints. But there's a broader aspect to this because it's a lifestyle of generosity that displays itself not just in the giving of money, but in the giving of your life. And it's a life that's given to the Lord in such a way that every aspect of your life becomes generous in nature. And this, Paul says, this giving was not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Okay, so here, there it is. Do you see it? It wasn't like we expected, but then it was like we expected. They gave themselves to the Lord first. Of course, if you give yourself to the Lord, if you fully give yourself to the Lord, if you say, it's yours, then pretty soon the will of God becomes natural for you because the supernatural presence of God is allowing things to happen in your life. And so they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to the need. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. So not only is it the grace of God pouring into us that gives us the strength to give, it's also grace for us to be generous. That requires a move of grace. God's grace pouring through us to give us strength and our grace pouring out to others. But as you excel in everything, he talks to this church in Corinth, because this church in Corinth, as dysfunctional as they were in some areas, they were passionate about serving God. They were passionate about this relationship with God. As a matter of fact, when you read the letters, you realize it's their passion that kind of got away from them from time to time. But he says, as you excel in everything, faith, speech, knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. Here it is again. It's an act of grace. It's an act of giving people things they may not deserve. A person who's generous isn't giving somebody something they deserve. They're giving them something that's grace-filled. It's just, how can I be part of this in your life? And so we look at this idea and we see that, that as they gave themselves first to the Lord, Paul Paul says to them, you need to excel in being generous. It's not enough to be generous, it must excel in that. And then he says, this isn't a command, but to prove the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. See, he's not commanding this. Rather, it's to prove that the love that they have is genuine. Now, first and foremost, this is a love for the Lord. As I love the Lord, I'm going to love others. And the genuineness of my love is shown as I love others through generous acts, generous words, generous thoughts, and yes, generous giving. So it's this proof of love. And it's not a command. Remember what Paul told the church in Philippi, not that I'm looking for a gift, but I'm looking for what may be credited to your account. It's not about the gift. It's not about the gift. 
It's about how your heart is being shaped by God in a way that draws you to desire to give. In 1 Timothy, Paul says this, as he talks to Timothy as he's in Ephesus, and and he's talking to the church in, in Ephesus, and he's saying, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty or proud, not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and to be ready to share. So here's a theme that we see as Paul's doing this. He says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, not to be proud. And as I thought about that, it took me back to Deuteronomy chapter 8, and in Deuteronomy chapter 8, as as, um, Moses is speaking to the children of Israel, the first, those who had left Egypt have died off, and now he's speaking to their children as they prepare to enter into this promised land that God has provided for them, and it's an amazing land. It is unbelievable what God has waiting for his people. And they have gone through the desert. And in Deuteronomy chapter 8, he's saying, remember that I brought you through the desert so that you could see the power of my hand. You could see that I was providing you everything you needed, every meal you needed. Your shoes didn't wear out. Your feet didn't swell up. You, You thrived in a realm where you should not have even survived because of my care for you, because of my love for you, because of my faithfulness, great is thy faithfulness. And yet I'm taking you into a land and you are going to take hold of that which I have promised you. You are going to take hold of a land. I'm going ahead of you and I'm going to drive out everybody in that land so that you can experience affluence like you had never thought possible. You will have houses that are unbelievable. You will have food like you've never tasted. (laughs) You will have so many things. Be careful, because the minute that happens, you will be tempted to forget who I am. Deuteronomy 8, 17, it says, you may say, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me, but don't forget the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. So he talks to these people and he says, listen, don't think the affluence you have is because of anything you've done. It's because I have provided this for you. Just like I provided when you were in the desert, I provided for you when you are in season of great wealth. And so, of course, we realize that they fell away from that and and so judgment came and those kinds of things. But Timothy is telling them, listen, don't get haughty. Don't set your hopes on the uncertainty of riches in this world. Don't do it. But put your hope in God, who richly provides with everything that you need to enjoy your life and to enjoy your existence. Be good, he tells them. Be good, be rich in good works, be generous and be ready to give. So these are the things that he's saying, these are the things that identify a disciple is to be ready to be generous. Lifestyle generosity. We have a generous king. We're generous by grace. Finally, we are generously storing up for our future. 
Paul goes on in Timothy and says, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so they may take hold of that which is truly life. See, there's a reason that we give and the reason that we give so generously is because we're storing up for a future. The kingdom of God is a kingdom that we belong to, yes, right now, but there's a future aspect to that that's amazing. And just as Jesus came to seek and save the lost and came to build his kingdom here, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, he said, as he took off on his ministry, Mark tells us. And so the kingdom of God is at hand, yet there's an aspect of it that's not yet here. And it's that aspect where we look and determine what is the currency of that kingdom that we belong to. And it's important to realize that because Jesus in in Matthew 6 in the Sermon on the Mount says, do not store up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but rather store up for yourself treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now that's most fascinating Because he says, where your treasure is, is where your heart will be. Today is a significant day in the college basketball world. Today is the day they set up the bracket for March Madness. How many of you care about that? 17 of you. Now, maybe you work in a place, have you seen the brackets? And maybe you work in a place where you realize that if you fill in all those brackets and you put one buck into a pool, you can win $14,730, right? And, and maybe you succumb to the peer pressure and, and you give your dollar and you start looking at this name and you don't know the difference between a Duke and a Gazanga and a whatever. <laughs> but you put down all these names and what happens? All of a sudden, you start caring about what's happening with college basketball. Because your treasure has been put there. That whole dollar has been put there. And you begin to, it gets a piece of your heart. And Jesus is saying, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In his book, The Treasure Principle, Randy Elkhorn uses this beautiful illustration I think is very helpful. Imagine yourself near the end of the Civil War. You're a northerner stranded by, uh, by the war in the south. You plan to move home when the war is over. While in the south, you've accumulated lots of Confederate currency. Suppose you know for a fact that the North is going to win the war soon. What will you do with your Confederate currency? If you're smart, you'll immediately cash in your excess Confederate currency for U.S. currency, the only money that will have any value after the war. You'll keep only enough Confederate currency to meet your needs in the short term. I love that illustration. You know we're part of a kingdom where the currency of this world has no value. 
right? There's a joke told about the guy who, who walked up to the heaven's gates and told St. Peter, you know, I've got all this to bring in. He had wheelbarrows full of gold, and Peter said, what are you going to do with all that paving material? You know, and, and right? So the, the currency of this world is a whole different currency than the currency of the kingdom of heaven. And the currency of the kingdom of heaven, listen, if you're accumulating the currency of this world, and, and if you're accumulating that in selfishness or self-centeredness or those kinds of things, you're going to miss out in investing for yourself, lay up for yourself treasures in heaven. You are going to miss having a currency of the new kingdom. And as I thought about that, and what does it mean to live this lifestyle of generosity? I've realized that I'm not, I'm not a generous person. I have a routine. I am a person with a really routine, the way I get up, the way I do my coffee. I mean, it's just crazy. But the thing I've come to appreciate more than anything, and Karen can attest to this, is I'm so flexible in that routine. Mm -mm. And so God blessed me with kids and grandkids who love to come in and embrace my routine. And man, I get ornery, right? I mean, yeah. Because I'm not really all that generous with my routine and with my space. And so it's not just money we're talking about here. And, and, and sometimes I can be a really ungenerous person, but give a lot of money to somebody and somehow I think that's supposed to offset this. And, and what we're seeing today is it's a, it's a holistic thing. Psalm 62.10, it says, though riches come, don't set your heart on them. As I said, this message was planned to be preached in November. And it's interesting to me that I'm preaching this message on the weekend that some of us are beginning to get our stimulus checks. Riches are coming. I know there are all sorts of emotions that come with this. But I want to say to you, probably there's going to be about a thousand of people that are influenced by this moment, this time that I'm talking. It's possible that as many of a, as a thousand of those $1,400 checks are going to be given. That's $1.4 million that's coming to us. Let's just put aside the conversations about how it's getting there, okay? It's come through or... What are we going to do with that? How could we be generous with that? What have you been thinking you'd do with that? I got an email from the Koitzes who live in Zambia, and they were with us in the first service and sent me a video and said, hi, um... I love that. But they sent an email that said, we understand and know how important it is to get the stimulus check, and, and there's some in our, in our congregation who have desperately needed that. 
And for them, amen, and, and it's important and it's critical. But listen, if you're in a situation where, where maybe this is just riches that are coming and you really didn't need it, you weren't counting on it, it wasn't anything, and, and, and in Zambia, $1,400 is four months' salary for five teachers. 40 kids go to school all year long on $1,400. As riches come into your life. Now, think about, think about Inspiration Ministries and the impact that they have and how they've been impacted because of, this, because of the pandemic response and, and, and the needs that they have. Think of our camps in the area and the things that have happened there. In your bulletin is an insert that talks about a Michael W. Smith concert that's coming for Faith Christian School, and it's $500 a ticket, and you're thinking, wow, there's no way I can do that. There is now. And maybe you're not even supposed to go to the concert. Maybe you're just supposed to send 500 or or 1000 to Faith Christian School. Listen, I want to share to you, I have a big burden on my heart for our children. Because public school system is a system that is teaching our kids humanism every minute of the day. And it is teaching them that there is no place in their life for God and there is no need for them to have any attention paid to God. And I don't want to talk badly about it. I know there's some teachers in the public school system and I thank God for you and I, I do and I praise God that you're there. But I want to say to you parents, really carefully think about what's being taught to your children day after day after day after day. And it's impacting them in a negative way. And some of us need to step in and be really generous in contributing to Christian schools so that they can thrive and so that parents who maybe not can afford the whole thing could have help in doing that. And maybe that's a place where God's asking you to build his kingdom. Some of you may choose to give to the church here. I'm not asking for a gift. I'm asking for what could be credited to your account. And I, I mean that. It's just really think about what does it mean to live this generous life and what would it look like to take this one check as an opportunity to consider what to do with that. And maybe it's a whole lot more than that check for you. But to stop and consider and to think of what can I do with what I've been entrusted with. So many of us, if we're not careful, we're taking the, the resources that God has trusted with us for this time and we're putting it aside for later. And the things that God's looking to do now are not able to get done. And I'm not saying you shouldn't prepare for retirement, but to prepare money that will get passed to the next generation, to the next generation, to the next generation. Are you moving according to the grace of God to be generous? And where are you generously storing up your treasure? And how has a year of the COVID response caused you to think about the kingdom of heaven? Because the truth is, this past year, and it was a year ago today, that was the last service we had in person before the shutdown. And in that year, truthfully, the stuff that's come at us has caused us to shut in and to close in and to not be all that generous with our gestures or anything else. So how can we recapture that generosity as we mimic the generosity of our king? So Lord God, thank you. Thank you that you've shown us the generosity that we can have. 
And Lord, you know that for each one of us that looks different. And, and I thank you for that, God. I thank you that as we look to you, you will guide and lead us. It's all yours. You've entrusted it to us. You've entrusted it to us to use for you to build your kingdom. And so, Lord, I pray that you'd help us to become generous people, people who have an attitude of generosity that reveals your love to the world. I pray that in your name. Amen. Amen. Could I ask you please to stand and hear God's good word for you? And this comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 8. May God make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency and contentment in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work for him. Amen? Amen. Well, God bless you. Have an amazing day. And I release you to a week of work, witness, and worship. God bless.